Hi, this is Esther, and you're listening to the Sometimes Always Book Club. We are reading Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. This is Chapter 2, Absent Friends. today with John. Say hello. Hello. And Bob. Hello. And hello. Zach. Uh, uh, hey. Devin. Welcome, welcome. Andrew. Yes. Katie. Howdy. And today we're discussing chapter two, Absent Friends. I will mention at the beginning here, just a quick warning that there is some discussion of sexual assault in this chapter. So be warned. Should we mention, we're, we're all anti-sexual assault, right? Yes. yes Most, mostly. <laughs> I would hope so. Well, I guess now I'm like, aligned by Rorschach. Yeah. In this chapter, we go into the memories of those who knew Edward Blake best and attend his funeral and come to terms with what his death means to them. The opening image is a stone angel in a cemetery. Crying. Crying, yes. Well, because well, of the rain. rain. Yeah. What <laughs> <laughs> makes it look like she's crying? Lori visits her mother in California. Also mentioned, Lori is in California because she's been teleported there by John, which just is kind of awesome. Honestly. Sugar Daddy Blumen. Exactly. How does he know when she wants to come back? He knows, he knows everything. everything. Uh-huh. Lori tries to avoid telling her mom that John is at the comedian's funeral, but Sally saw it on the news and knows. She tells Lori that she's moved on from what happened to her with Blake. Sally shows Lori a Tijuana Bible, which is a tiny little porno comic about herself from the 1940s when she was Silk Spectre 1, crime-fighting sex symbol. Lori is disgusted by the comic, but Sally is very nostalgic about the old days in many ways. Um, and I think this is uh, kind of where Katie was talking about, about the progression uh, being the, the kind of they're the same two characters in two different times and, mm -hmm. and how they each deal with these um, situations differently according to the social which, the norms of the time which was something i like put down in my book or in my notes because i was like so i always thought that like silk specter 2 was like kind of the new breed of comic books and then like silk specter 1 was kind of the old heads and it's like like especially the transition between like current day back to her memory it like with the flashball which is fucking sweet but it's also like kind of that symbolism of like she keeps looking back on the on the past and keeps getting brighter all the time and then it flashes and it's back to this horrible memory of course but i choose to not look at it like that i don't i don't look at it like that at all and it's kind of like old head comic book fans just kind of being like well the, well the past is great the past is great and the, no no it isn't it was kind of shitty at times it was kind of awful no, no 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 if i keep looking back you know it just gets better every time i look back and at the end of my note it said maybe i'm up my own ass so <laughs> Take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> I think you could even extend that out to anybody, any anybody's past, kind of romanticizing. And again, not to bring politics into it, but the whole bring back the good old days, make America great again. Yeah. When? You know, what when? What was that great? And, and yeah. what about the not so great parts that we're not going to consider? We're just going to romanticize and remember yeah. the bright parts. 
nostalgia. What? <laughs> Looking back with rose tinted glasses can definitely fuck up the future. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And it's like a big theme in this too. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, you know, especially with like Doctor Manhattan, how he views the future and present and past, and <laughs> how he like that. Even it's just, well, I can't really meddle with this, but I can, but I can't. Yeah, he did, but I didn't. But I didn't, I can't, but yeah. Also, why couldn't the Tijuana Bible be one of the excerpts? (laughs) (laughs) So the flashbulb flashback that Zach is talking about happens with the picture of the original Minutemen, and it flashes back to the moment that that picture was taken. And the original Minutemen are talking about their publicity and their image and their commercial appeal. And we kind of see that what they were doing was in some ways, a commercial version of superhero stuff. It was it was just as much about their image and publicity and marketing and all that as it was about actually doing any kind of good in the world. Sally goes to change her clothes and is cornered by Edward Blake. He flirts with her. She kind of laughs it off, and he gets increasingly persistent. She resists him and scratches his face to defend herself, and he attacks her and attempts to rape her. It's a really brutal scene the way it is depicted in just the frames of a comic it's kind of unlike any anything i've ever seen when it comes to a comic it's very uh graphic and it's very bloody and it's very disturbing it's one of the most disturbing scenes in the book i think i think so too you know i I noted in my notes that it was uh brutal the same word you used and yeah, it's almost like we get her clouded or intentionally clouded vision of it first, or version of it, and then we go back and see the objective reality, which was pretty awful. Yeah. And it's it's a great counterpoint to the idea that the past is past and that's something you can move move on from. I'm not sure that's ever true, and I'm, I, I certainly don't think it's true for her. They are interrupted by Hooded Justice. Thank God back for Hooded Justice. What a G. Like. <laughs> come back to check on Sally, and he attacks Blake and beats him up. Until Blake makes a comment alluding to Hooded Justice's sexual deviancy and leaves. The scene is sort of awkward at that point. Somebody on Reddit was saying that they thought that, that Hooded Justice was very cold and mean in this scene. But I think it's an awkward scene where he doesn't know what to say. And their relationship is really ambiguous in some ways. There's some indication that they were together, but then there's also... A lot of stuff that contradicts that later. So I think their relationship was not very clearly defined. But I think it's an awkward moment where it shows that he doesn't know what to say to her and how to react to what's just happened. I think uh, I think too that more kind of resists typical heroic moments and doesn't want to give the audience what they're looking for. And so if they were looking for a great scene of rescue in that moment, I think he wanted to withhold that. Yeah. The the thing I was going to bring up is like. Like you can see it, like with it when you even just turn the page, just the color palette is completely different from the rest of the comic book. It's brighter. It's it's just brighter. Like you you can see it's so oh. much more vivid. I mean, compared to everything else, and even the the other flashback that Vite has, that Adrian has, just this completely different hue of just like all these different colors that don't show up the way they do in the comic book ever again. Yeah. Like the comedian's yellow. Yeah, yeah. and just, just all of that pops so much more. They're just kind of emphasizing like how bright this past look to Silk Spectre 1. There's a lot of contrasting colors too. There's the purples and the yellows and the so it really makes it all pop. Mm-hmm. And You know, that, uh, that awkwardness you talk about with the scene. Now, I had wondered when I first read it about, Esther was talking about media, you know, publicity horror kind of situation. And with Hooded Justice being the first one, walking in on this scene and seeing two of his supposed teammates, the the fruits of his labor sort of to, to grow this team, 
And one of them is, is basically attempting to be the criminal they're trying to stop. And the other yeah. one is becoming the victim they're trying to save. And I wonder if that awkwardness is him going, where are we going to go? Yeah. If this is actually what we're yeah. drawing yeah. from. What's the purpose of this? Yeah. Are we actually doing good? And he might be the only one that sees the repercussions of what they're potentially going to do or what they're out there doing. That whole mindset of you can clear out the streets of criminals and it'll just be us and yet we still have some criminals in yes. ourselves yeah. and amongst our bits and yeah. which is which brings back who watches the watchmen. Exactly. Like, it's just that. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly perfect. Speaking of watches, the <laughs> clocks are all at five minutes to noon. Like the uh-huh. or five minutes to midnight or something. I did just like notice the, that too, actually. It is more dramatic to say midnight. Thank you. <laughs> the doomsday clock is oh, tea time. <laughs> the doomsday clock is at five minutes to noon. Sandwiches well, anyone. <laughs> Back to modern day. Lori is disturbed at the idea of her mother as a sex symbol. And Sally reminds Lori that she is nothing more than a sexual release for Dr. Manhattan to keep him relaxed and happy. It's a tense kind of moment and a uh just a kind of a nasty dig that may or may not be true. Guys fighting over who's the sexiest. Well, I, I would kind of interpret it myself as with Lori just kind of like having this perspective that she's bringing that's kind of in contrast with her mother's, that she's kind of taking this opportunity to be like, hey, you know, you're not that above me, you know, just kind of bringing mm-hmm. her down to the level that she's being perceived at. So just kind of leveling the playing field that way that. I have a feeling that, you know, this definitely hints towards that dynamic as mother-daughter a lot Yes, throughout the story. The thing that I like, that I always really liked is how her mom sees this Tijuana Bible as something valuable. It's like, oh, I look, I had my own, you know, naked comic book written about me. And she's like, mom, that that kind of sucks. Maybe (laughs) you don't do that. And you see the insecurity within her just to just kind of like her self-image is very much reflected upon her own outward appearance and oh i'm aging like you know well this is you know another bright glimmer of the past that i can hold on to tangibly and like have that i that can remind me of what i once was yeah, yeah. it's very important to her when yeah. she says you know the way that she that she wants to remember the way that men looked at her and that's very important i think to her identity she wants to hold on to that in any way she can yeah but at the same time, I think she wants Lori to be more than that. And she wants Lori to honor the sacrifices that she made, that she w- did have to be a sex symbol and had to sell herself that way because that's how she was valued. And now Lori has other opportunities and she's just like throwing that in her mom's uh, face. Yeah. There's like a start thing from the flashback into holding the Tijuana Bible in her hand, going from that scene to another sexual scene in the Bible or Tijuana Bible, <laughs> not the actual Bible. <laughs> um, going from what actually happened to seeing it being a comedy thing in the... From the panel of her on the floor, bloody after what happened to her, and then the next panel is the cartoon version of her, you know, smiling. Oh, say, baby, this is the tops. (laughs) (laughs) Treat me tough, sugar. Treat me rough, which is worse. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the line in, for good, for God's sake, cover yourself, and then it immediately flashes to her getting fucked in a comic. There's a lot of complexities in the portrayal of sexuality throughout this whole, oh, absolutely. whole absolutely. story. And looking at it through modern eyes, I think, is actually adds a new layer to it, but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. At Blake's funeral, Adrian Veidt is remembering attending a meeting of masked vigilantes known as the Crime Busters, a large group of crime fighters with some original members of the Minutemen, like 
Captain Metropolis and the comedian. And newer members like a young Lori, a Silk Spectre 2, Dr. Manhattan, Dan Dryberg, and Rorschach. Two things I want to jump in on that page right there. Okay. The scene with Adrian going into his memory perfectly illustrates the transitions that won me over in this book oh, to yeah. begin with. Mm-hmm. That that closing in on his face and then transforming into Ozymandias in this exact same facial expression and everything. But then also the very next scene with them in their meeting mirrors the original meeting. We got that, that duality going on to where I remember the first time I read this, the timeline lost me there for just a second because I was like, oh, we're back at that meeting. But wait a minute, who are these people? <laughs> the mirroring there is, is just, again, brilliant. And to go back one step, when you mentioned the picture, the flashbulb in the picture, that's... I find it interesting throughout the book how important that particular picture is. Yes, it comes back oh, yes. again and yeah. again. Blake's yeah. murder, it's in uh, Hollis's house. It's, it, it is Every- the linchpin that ties everything together. To add another layer on that, it's, uh, Lord, for our sins are justly displeased. And then, well, firstly, let me say I'm pleased to see you have so many here. And it's yes. like that duality. That, like, yeah, yeah, what's up? I noticed it. Beautiful transition. Uh, <laughs> the group discusses the possibility of working together, and the comedian rips apart their ideas almost immediately, pointing out that this is all because Captain Metropolis is too old to do this on his own and needs help. Ozymandias points out that with the right organization, it could be done, and Blake accuses him of wanting to appoint himself, which could very well be true, but he didn't even give him a chance. Blake says none of the things they're worried about matter anyway, because in 30 years, the world will end, and he sets the display on fire. And I just want to point out that for some reason, the panel of him setting it on fire and the little word bubble from the side that just says, my display, cracks me up every <laughs> single time. <laughs> and and I feel like that, again, to kind of tie things between him and Rorschach again, you kind of see um, another instance of, and again, this is set in the past, so like his sense of character is different than how it's presented in, in the present, with uh, with Rorschach in particular, where he is kind of actually riding the middle again. He says, I see the potential good that this can do, however, the you know cons of it being kind of large, and maybe it'll be publicity-focused instead of, like, results-focused. It's, again, like, you know, you see his hardline stance that he claims to have of being, you know, black, things being black or white, and again, displaying a little bit of gray in here, but maybe he did learn from the comedian in this particular meeting or other interactions that they had before and kind of started embracing that nihilistic mindset even more. Something that I really loved about that page specifically, like, is that, like, first three panels on that page is, like, a spread of the room, but sectioned off. And it's, like, Uh I love that. Just, like, Mm -hmm. that, like, kind of, it's already fractured. From the very beginning, it's already fractured. And uh, in my notes, it said, three panel spread of everyone looking at Comedian while he's shitting on the Crime Busters. Owns so hard. And that was, yeah, my (laughs) wonderful insight. Thank you. (laughs) The other thing I love about that whole section, actually, is right from the beginning of the picture of their, of their meeting, you're focused on the word bubbles and the meeting and comedian kind of not paying attention. But off to the side, Dr. Manhattan is checking out Lori. Mm-hmm. And throughout the entire thing in the background, you can watch the entire conversation between mm-hmm. Dr. Manhattan and his girlfriend through the whole thing. That is Janie Slater. Janie, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> terrible with names, you know. That. Blue Man's girlfriend. After the comedian's exit, when they leave, it's almost like Janie's upset because of what the comedian did. But then it comes back later, of course, that all that was going on in the background the entire time. And it's mm. very obvious. Mm-hmm. That's also another mirroring exit, too. We end with uh, Ozymandias going back to the funeral. Yes. I, I love that, and, too. That's a really good um, transition. 
the other the last part where he sees like kind of the destroyed map it's like you see him like planting the seeds for his final plan like that's like kind of somebody the genesis has of it. to save the world yeah, somebody yes, has is... to save the world and he's like looking at that burn and it's like yeah well and that was one thing when i saw him light the display on fire i was like well how important are these guys really to the events that are unfolding in the world because there's so many things that are out of their control and they can't even get it together to try and deal with like one thing they're fighting amongst each other so like what I just wondered, like, what is going to happen and how much effect are they going to have on it? Yeah. I'm actually reading this uh, display there, and yeah, it, <laughs> I feel like there are some bigger concerns other than promiscuity. Yes. I wonder, I wonder if maybe just, this was like a group project and they're like, everyone put down what bothers you most about what's going down. Warshak's just uh-huh. like, it's the whores. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my favorite one is just. Drugs <laughs> and black over California. Unrest. It's in the California <laughs> area. Right there, yeah. Oh, you're true. Anti-war. Demo. Wait, is promiscuity in yeah. Canada? Is that what's happening? <laughs> oh, shit. It's Oregon. It's Portland. Oh, <laughs> Doctor Manhattan at the funeral remembers being in Vietnam with Blake when the war ended on VVN night. The comedian was drunk and angry. A pregnant Vietnamese woman appears and asks to speak to Blake. I shouldn't say she appears. She walks in. (laughs) Surprise. There's a lot of jokes in this. See, Rorschach walks into a bar. Uh, A pregnant Vietnamese lady walks into a bar. (laughs) Always good outcomes, too. Yes. (laughs) A pregnant Vietnamese woman walks in. She asks for his help because he is the father of her child. He refuses, saying that it's not his problem. And he's going to leave and forget about her and the entire war. She becomes angry and attacks him with a broken bottle so that he will always remember her and her country by the scars she leaves on the side of his face. His face is getting scratched again. A lot. Yes. He gets that a lot. He pulls out a gun, ignoring Dr. Manhattan's warning to him, and he shoots her dead, which is one of the most shocking things I've ever seen. Dr. Manhattan points out that she was pregnant and he still shot her and Blake reminds him that he could have intervened with his powers and stopped it all, but he didn't. You did this. Yeah. <laughs> this you basically did this. It yeah, wasn't he me. does. He turns it around immediately and blames it on Dr. Manhattan. He's just basically like, well, you totally could have stopped this, but you didn't. So whatever. You realize in seven pages in one character, you've twice said this is the most shocking thing I've seen. But no, it shocked me the first time I read it. I was like, I cannot believe that just happened. Alan Moore is like the master of that for oh, real. Yeah. Like, I mean, killing joke uh-huh. where they shoot Barbara in the spine. Like, what? Gosh, dude. Spoiler alert. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's take this opportunity to spoil lots of different things. He also, Moore also uses violence against women or rape or attempted rape in a fair amount of books. And I think he's got a little bit of criticism for it. I feel like that's fair. Yeah. I, I feel like, and again, I'm a man. My perspective on this is limited in a lot of different ways, but I was, but I, I've been a little let down by the portrayal of women in this story. I'm um, a woman, and um, I was also me. very woman. critical of the how he treated women. I mean, I, mean, I, like, I portrayed them. I really feel like he's really trying to get down to how humanity sees women as a whole, especially in the time frame that this book is written, and that sure. that is their worth. And I mean, sure, he could try and extrapolate and make it better if he wanted to, but I think that would take a lot away from the story, especially since so many women that were trying to enter the workforce in the 40s and the 50s were sexually assaulted and sexually harassed. A lot of Vietnamese women were raped and killed and treated really horribly. He's really highlighting super big moments in women's history and how men have treated them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, think that's, really I think that that's fair. Yeah. And I, I also think that Laurie 
more than just a sex. I think she's somewhat of an audience surrogate, at least for me. Mm-hmm. She's a relatable character. Mm-hmm. She is sort of lost and sort of angry. She has fun. You know, it's almost nobody else does. <laughs> you mean Rorschach doesn't have fun? Right? <laughs> uh, Rorschach has some fun. We each define fun in our own way. Yes. I, I also think that the the Jupiter women, both of them, are vessels to kind of show both how back then in specifically the comic book medium and now they are both like things just haven't changed. Like there, there will always be sexist comic book women. Marvel released the swimsuit edition, dude. Like that's a real thing. You can look up. There's also a male yeah, swimsuit that, edition too. That was okay, dope. I was gonna say. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Equal opportunity here. Equal opportunity yeah. objectification. Of well, we're we're looking at it right yeah, now in yeah. this scene because he's Doctor Manhattan's wearing his speedo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Later on, you get to see full dong. And it's, you know, really I guess, I, guess I want to clarify uh, my own position in that, like I've. I'm not necessarily saying that I found it disappointing that there was instances shown of stuff happening to women that's bad. I accept that that's clearly a thing that's happened and is like being commentated on in this uh, in this format. I guess kind of what bothered me about it was we've been talking about duality throughout a lot of this. And I, I see how it's important in the portrayal of the mother-daughter combo of Silk mm-hmm. Spectre, but it, it, I still just kind of found it a little frustrating in that they're like purposely being made into pretty similar but kind of mirrored images of each other so it just kind of limited I the portrayal of different wavelengths of women i do see that though as and and it gets more into this later but i mean it is touched on here that sally pushed Lori into mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. Yeah. and wanted her to continue like pick up the mantle of silk specter and, and be the next generation of it it wasn't really anything that Lori ever really wanted for herself. Mm-hmm. And there is uh, one point in the story where she even says that she's 35 and this is all she has done. And she's not super happy about that because it wasn't necessarily the life that she wanted for herself. So I think that there's similarity in that way. It has a lot. It's important to the character because it was her following in her mother's footsteps, whether she wanted to or not. I think making her mother happy and connecting with her mother is still important to her, even if she doesn't necessarily want to do it in that way. I Mm. think that a lot of daughters do things, try to connect with their mom or maybe do things that they don't want to or agree with because they want to make their mother happy. I, I guess that's kind of what I get from that. I do have some issues with the limitation of her character and both of their characters, honestly, but I also find them very real, mm-hmm. their yeah. relationship mm-hmm. in particular. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and yep. like I said before, she grew on me too. Like when I first saw them, I was like, okay, sad, sexy lady and angry, sexy lady. But like, <laughs> old, but angry, she's still sexy. <laughs> but, you know, as the character develops and she gets her own chapter, then it kind of makes sense of, oh, well, okay. So she's not a totally flat character. And I think you've all hit on Portions Actually, of it she's because... rather curvy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're all hitting on portions of it, though, because like John said earlier, I, I don't think more ever wants to give you what you want mm-hmm. or ever wants to give you what you expect for sure. And he's also is absolutely using this as a, uh, a dialogue on a multitude of issues. But I don't think he will ever you know, come through and give you that, that resolution you want because he wants it to be gritty. He wants you to think about it. He wants you to hate them. And he wants you yeah. to look at that as a reflection on whatever ill. I, you know, you can you can put that toward a lot of things in this book. But 
But I, I, I do think that was absolutely yeah. his tool. He absolutely wanted to stir that pot so that you would start that dialogue. Yeah, it is really easy to read something and then get really worked up about it and then be like, okay, wait a minute. Why am I worked yeah, up about this? Back. What did he do to me? I, I think- and, and not to say that, it, that this shouldn't be better, but I think if you compare Watchmen to the comic books of the time, the portrayal mm-hmm. of women is absolutely better in Watchmen than everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I was literally about to say, like, like uh, I don't remember. You, you did a lot of nodding while I was, was like, "Well, yeah." I was like, "Yes, that's great." Very close to what I was going to say. But... I second that, John. I second that. what he but said. Yes. Well, and back to what Bob was saying about not giving you what you want. I think that's so real to life. You don't always get the ending that you want. You rarely ever do, and you have to deal with whatever the consequences are. And I think a lot of the dialogue between Lori and her mom are dealing with the consequences of both of their choices and how that affects their relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember what I was going to say because you said something good. Alan Moore is kind of like the first great comic book writer. He was able to turn this kind of like, haha, funny books into something real, real novel of graphics and be able to turn this into something good because X-Men kind of did it in the 70s with, you know, feminism and stuff like that. But this was the first time we got like a real adult story that wasn't cornball as hell and super lame. And I, again, I'm you know 26 but and I wasn't alive back then, but being able to go back into comic book history... Oh, yeah, this is the turning point. This is the moment we were able to just be like, oh, my gosh, you can tell stories like this with such that we're able to sit around a table and digest it like that. Mm-hmm. This one, of, this is that's one of the reasons why I love this. It's so it's it, you can just see the moment as soon as Watchmen happened. It all changed. Like, I find it funny. You talk about the uh, X-Men doing something on like race relations or whatever. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not a comic book guy, but having picked up a few cents and just flipped through them, I can see where you're coming from, but I also get the feeling like those older ones kind of did it like in a Scooby-Doo kind of, oh, yeah, here's sure. an issue, Absolutely. but we're going to unmask yeah. it and solve it yeah. in you know, yeah, 10 like, pages. Stanley really tried, but it's 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 corny. It's yeah. real corny. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> wasn't, yeah. There, wasn't there a Star Trek episode where people with, I don't know, people who are half black and half white yes. and the people who are half yeah. white and half black or something bizarre. Yeah, they had like a, a line down the middle of the face and one side was black and one side was white and they were prejudiced against the people who had the reverse. Right. Sense. Blake tells Manhattan that he's losing touch with humanity and doesn't care about anyone else and Manhattan is less left to ponder this and we have another one of those moments where his body language is sort of mirrored with the transition. He's kind of pondering and then it goes to him at the funeral wearing a suit which is kind of funny. And then we have Dan having his memory of the police strike of 1977 and how he and Blake were tasked with crowd control during a riot. Blake discusses his worldview with Dan as they patrol the streets. Blake says the only way to get through anything is to see the funny side of things. His nihilistic view of things seems to bother Dan. That's really all we get from that little scene, how different they are and how, especially with paired up and working together on this one thing, they just simply don't see eye to eye. All three of these, they show that worldview. And it's like, well, what is the comedian's joke? Society, cute Joker reference. Eh, society. But like, <laughs> it is. It really is. And all three of these do such a great job of communicating that. My nihilism, we're all the joke humanity. And all three of those is, is perfect for it. The funeral ends and a man walks home alone. He is former villain named Edgar Jacoby, a.k.a. Moloch. 
Burshak ambushes him in his home and demands to know why he attended the funeral. Jacoby reveals Blake visited him a week before he died, drunk and rambling about Dr. Manhattan, an island, a list featuring Jacoby and someone named Janie Slater, writers, scientists, and artists. He cried about the horror to come and the terrible things he'd seen and done, and then he left. Jacoby tells Rorschach he didn't understand any of it. It's a really weird scene. It's it's a good scene, but it's a weird scene because he really does just kind of ramble. Obviously, it all makes sense later, but when it's happening, it just sounds like a bunch of nonsense. I think this kind of goes back to noir. There's usually like a noir scene where that happens. They find a guy that has information and spoilers before he dies and they can't get any more information from him. And then it makes sense later. Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody else really, really acknowledge Rorschach's hiding spot? I was just about to bring that up. I was going to to say the classic noir trope as well of hiding in the refrigerator. That would be really difficult to. You have to move the shelves. You better fucking hope he's hungry too. There until like 8.30 in the morning when he gets up and wants to add some like half and half to his cost. Rorschach jumping out of Moloch's fridge is so good. It's, it's, <laughs> it's actually probably a little more satisfying than the classic crashing through like a window oh, or yeah. something like that. I also like right after that, the, the whole scene where Blake's giving his story, the alternating color scheme. It's like as orange, he's, blue, yeah, orange. orange, blue, orange, blue, as he's roller coastering through his emotional state as well. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty brilliant. Yeah, it's a really sort of like manic rambling speech and he's crying and it's a very uh, uncharacteristic of what we've seen from him so far. It's the first time we've ever really seen him show any kind of emotion or anything. I mean, we only see him in flashbacks. And you see one connection to Moloch before this, when one comedian is punching Sally in the face, it's yep. reflected in Moloch's solar mirror weapon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Rorschach decides to believe Moloch's story because it's so crazy. That is literally his reason to believe it was because <laughs> it's a crazy story, so it must be true. Sounds unbelievable. Probably true. And <laughs> yet not another instance of hypocrisy where he has this thing that he can hang over Moloch's head of a crime that he's committed with the illegal medication that he has and just kind of for whatever reason his own personal reason as opposed to an iron set of rules that he's supposed to be living by just going like eh, fuck it whatever yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll see you later <laughs> Rorschach leaves and returns to the cemetery where he reflects on Edward Blake's life and murder all while telling the Pagliacci joke which is a great moment in the story before the joke though which is, is absolutely brilliant. I just noticed this, and for the first time, as I'm flipping through here, as Rorschach leaves Moloch, he's walking past the burlesque show, and tonight is showing the Enola Gay and the Little Boys. That's fucking brilliant. <laughs> I saw it, but I didn't yeah. get it. Who are that? The Enola Gay is the plane that, that carried, uh, I forget if it was uh, Hiroshima or Nagasaki. It was, it was the oh. plane that dropped one of them, and Fat Man and Little Boy are the two types of nukes they dropped. I see. And each one was, was built differently, and that's what it was referring to. But yeah, it's, and uh, right before the joke, right before the Pagliacci joke, Rorschach's trying to like di- dissect all of this and slice and dice it to make a little bit more sense to him and kind of figure out what, what the comedian was talking about, why somebody would kill the comedian. There's the line, it was violent lives ending violently. Why don't we die in bed? Not allowed. What a real superhero would be and how they would exist in this real world and how the idea is absurd and how it seems futile to live that way. And it's like supported by those. And of course, somebody who lived violently and killed people and put people to justice by beating the shit out of them would die assassinated. And it goes back to everybody else he mentioned when he was breaking into Dr. Manhattan's place. This person got shot. This person got murdered. This person's in a insane asylum. And of course, the comedian's end would be this way. 
Man goes to doctor. Says he's depressed. Says life seems harsh and cruel. Says he feels all alone in a threatening world, where what lies ahead is vague and uncertain. Doctor says treatment is simple. Great clown Pagliacci is in town tonight. Go and see him. That should pick you up. Man bursts into tears. Says, but doctor, I am Pagliacci. Good joke. Everybody laugh. We're all on snare drum. <laughs> there's, there's the red, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. All, all bright red, and it gets more and more red as it goes down the page, too. He takes one of the roses from Blake's grave, and he leaves. Is that poor etiquette? Are you just allowed to take flowers? Is that like, <laughs> I feel like that's how you one. get ghosts. The chapter ends with an Elvis Costello lyric. And I'm up while the dawn is breaking, even though my heart is aching. I should be drinking a toast to absent friends instead of all these comedians. And an excerpt, again, from Hollis Mason's memoir, Under the Hood, where he discusses his training, his costume, his name, a little more about hooded justice. I kind of like the last sentence in this, and and when we come back to that picture as a returning motif where the Minutemen are, you know, captured in in time in a photograph, and the final sentence of this uh, excerpt, the Minutemen were finished, but it didn't matter. The damage had already been done. So So for me, coupling that with the picture being taken it just kind of like solidifies that it's but it's possible that the road that the world is going to go down how that novel ends may have been like started at this moment it was just going to always go to this point because the moment happened it's finished we're just destined to go down this particular road now because of these meetings of superheroes according to john it already is it's already happened it's Mm -hmm. happening it will happen Oh, I thought you were talking about John. John, John. told me. <laughs> Sorry, I stole your thunder, John. <laughs> Character discussion, kind of uh, what we know so far, or what's going on in this uh, chapter. Lori, very strained relationship with her mother, complete with guilt trips, passive-aggressive remarks, and veiled insults. She loves her mother, but is simultaneously infuriated by her. Many adult women can relate to this, I think. Sally clings to the past, whether it's nostalgia over her former sex symbol status or her extremely complex and confusing relationship with Edward Blake. She is living in the time before. Adrian Veidt, we don't know much about him except that he wanted the Crime Busters to succeed and knew it needed organization. He's referred to as the smartest man in the world, sort of tagline. Dr. Manhattan, uh, we can tell where we are in time, partly by Dr. Manhattan's state of dress. The closer we are to the present, the more naked he becomes. Because uh, like even the Crime Busters meeting, he's wearing like a unitard kind of a thing. Oh, um, yeah. In Vietnam, he wears the little the little M panties. <laughs> the M panties. Well, they look like an M. Oh, we are trademarking that. For Manhattan. Ah. His memory of Blake, very disturbing scene in the book touches on an interesting mention of Manhattan's abilities. Blake holds him accountable for not saving the Vietnamese woman, pointing out that he could have saved her and didn't. This comment seems to give Dr. Manhattan pause. Dan Dryberg, Dan is Dan. He's kind of a Boy Scout. He's kind of a nerd. His memory shows mostly how different he is from Blake. You know, going back to Dr. Manhattan real quick, um, and I hadn't thought about this before until you just said that, the fact that Blake said that to him and it gave him pause, and I realized that while he knows what's going to happen is an action. He does not necessarily understand the motives behind it or the thought process behind it. And he, he, while he has separated himself from humanity, it makes me wonder if he is still learning or, or relearning how emotional people are and how they're going to react to his presence and his power. So he can't read minds? I don't know. Can he? I don't think so. 
I think he, I don't... A limitation. <laughs> I don't think he can read minds. I think he... He can see people's reactions. Like, he could see Lori crying or mm-hmm. like that. And then, like, what Bob was saying, he doesn't really understand what that means or, like, what those emotions... Right. The, the so removed consequences of those emotions. There's also a lot of irony in that memory, too, where it's like, oh, well, you've lost all sense of humanity, but, like, he literally just shot a woman in cold blood. <laughs> like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Unlike me, the real person in this equation, the, the human, who... Are you not, in fact, the bad guy, Mr. Manhattan? Yeah, like, <laughs> oh, let me walk out munching my cigar. Like, <laughs> got him. <laughs> Rorschach, still up to the same breaking and entering. Judgmental. His diary shows that he has contempt for most other people. He has a skewed view of the world and the human race in general. Also, I'm really intrigued, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot today in particular. I'm very intrigued by his speech pattern. Yes. Because <laughs> I, I don't want to get into too much about, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but mm-hmm. later we learn he does not always speak that way. Rorschach? It's like yeah. a noir voice, I think. I think he wants to be the cool detective, and so when he's writing in his journal, he sounds like a cool detective. But when he speaks, he leaves out a lot of words. He almost sounds like a caveman sometimes. <laughs> the way that I see it is, with the journal, you get a sense that maybe he's rushed. Because when he's mm-hmm. talking to Dr. Manhattan, the very first time you kind of see Dr. Manhattan, you can look at it and he's speaking articulate sentences. But when it comes to the journal, things are very quick and to the point. And I'm trying to... That makes sense. Yeah, he says, with respect, Dr. Manhattan, I warned Veit and Dreiberg, and I intend to warn you and your lady friend. I believe someone is... I mean, it's so articulate that it's not dead dog on street. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so sense of urgency or... But when he talks to... Moloch, he does talk in those that clipped. Maybe so it's when, like the Rorschach voice. Yeah, maybe it's like some type of respect thing. Like he respects Dr. Manhattan. So it's like, I'm going to talk like a human being. And mm. I hate Moloch. I don't know. No, the yeah, yeah, character he creates. And it's also, I see it as like kind of like a takedown of like Batman. Like yes. he's Batman. And like that's mm-hmm. Batman. Like, oh, don't do crap in my alley. Like, <laughs> God, God needs me. I am Rorschach. Yeah, like <laughs> it's, he's obviously that. Edward Blake, the more we learn about him, the more we see what a borderline psychopath he was. I don't even know why I were at borderline. I was going to point that out. I'm not sure. Moloch, one-time supervillain, now just a dying old man who seems to really be done with that side of himself. He says that a couple times early on, that that's all in the past he's done with that. I found that interesting, too, that he was like coming to show his respects to the comedian where, you know, they used to be hero and supervillain and then they kind of retired and then he was like, oh, my buddy died. My good buddy, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, getting back to what Esther had brought up about um, how back in the day, we'll call the day the 40s? Is that when the yeah. Minutemen were doing stuff? Yeah. Um, that a lot of the heroism and potentially uh, villainism was... A lot. There was a lot of commercialism attached to it. So, like in a way, it did seem less serious in some right, ways, for yeah. sure. Some mm-hmm. of it, I'm sure, some of it was serious, but some of it. He talks about running into like the one guy in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. I think Paulus talks about that at one mm-hmm. point, and it seemed a lot more casual, more right. like a like a friendly rivalry than like, like an I'll actual... see it too. Like, well, in a way, like the, the the thing I was thinking of was that they, you know, to borrow again from Batman stuff, they completed each other in a way. Like if a hero isn't measured by the crime that he stops necessarily, at least in the public eye. It's like, who did he beat? 
So if you have a villain there, someone that's kind of there, seen as their opposite in a way, then, you know, that makes them, but it also works the other way for the villains. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I robbed a grocery store. It's like, okay, that's cool. Not, who cares? But then it's like, <laughs> oh, one time I beat Hooded Justice. And it's like, oh, well, <laughs> this guy's really the wait, wait, big wait. threat. So, you know, in a way, even though they weren't drinking buddies, probably, they still were important to each other in yeah. that way because mm-hmm. they, they were able to, like, fuel their career just you know by having that opposite present i do love this chapter i think it's a fantastic chapter i will point out though the one mistake and it's not even a big deal oh here we are but it it does it is something that i noticed almost immediately and it's the flag that is folded on the casket is basically folded like a towel I was going to say, maybe that wasn't a mistake. Maybe that's more, again, saying... I think that's English author and English artist not understanding about, you know, I mean, because I don't think anybody else folds their flag. Dan the Boy Scout would not be okay with that. (laughs) No. No. He would be, like, too shy to say anything, but just, like, burning inside. He would just see his inner rage. He's just shaking at this. Now it's going to be in the ground. It's supposed to be a triangle! (laughs) You actually see that on page 58. You've got got Adrian Veidt. Sad, you've got Dr. Manhattan considering, and then you've got Dan yeah. crying over the folded flag. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're all looking he's, at the body, he's, he's eyeing getting... that flag. Just like, yeah. Fuck, oh, look at that. He's sweating, he is sweating. <laughs> yeah, say that too. So, no, that's the that's like the one mistake. Oh, no, uh, so yeah, I know it's not, even, it's not for even a big deal. Oh, jeez, I'm throwing this away. Folded <laughs> this fucking flag. No, I think it's just the British, uh. Author. So now I gotta look that up. That. Maybe, maybe that was one of uh, Nixon's like changes from his longer stay in office. Like, you know, that folding ceremony thing we do for, for <laughs> just whatever. Like, he's like, uh, we're going back. <laughs> we can't do anything queer <laughs> like crime. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> With Nixon. Ceremoniously. 